So, Sean, what, what's your vision? You know, for most of my life, my vision with respect to fitness and health has been very um, situational. And there's been times when I had an event that galvanized me and I had a very strong kind of why around that event and times when I had none. And I was kind of just, you know, maybe just kind of doing things more from habit. Um, but certainly once I kind of got into my 40s, uh, I started to have a, a consistent driving vision that has stayed with me and has only gotten stronger. And, you know, there's been a couple points during as I've gotten older where, you know, all of a sudden I thought, OK, maybe I'm maybe I'm at the end. You have a big injury. Um, you feel like, OK, now I have to stop. I have to it's time to throttle this back. It's time to accept that I'm on my decline. Hello, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half, Walk Double podcast, coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in springy Stratford, New Hampshire, U.S. of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you follow the show, thank you very much, and also welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports. As an exercise physiologist, coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, teammates, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Sean Hoyt is my guest this week. Now that I'm in my 50s, what impresses and inspires me are fellow Gen Xers who are still getting after it. Women and men in their 40s and early 50s who've learned through experience how to harmonize family, fitness, and career. Who acknowledge and accept that age requires change, but that change does not equal surrender. Sean is a great example of someone living this truth. He and I recently connected through Instagram, where I was struck by his physical and mental approach to fitness after 50. Here he is, Sean Hoyt. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. This is great. I'm really excited to be here with you. Hey, so I went to Wake Forest. And um, our quarterback last year, Sam Hartman, uh, had a phenomenal year, uh, led the Deeks uh, to another uh, to another great season. And uh, unfortunately for us, but perhaps fortunately for you, Sam uh, entered the transfer portal and will be uh, will be playing quarterback at uh, at Notre Dame this coming fall. Uh, and I know you are a Notre Dame alum. Uh, so, so let me, let me ask you this because, uh, you know, I, I'm a Sam Hartman fan. I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a Wake Forest alum first and foremost, but I'm also a Sam Hartman fan, even if I'm not necessarily a Notre Dame fan. Um, but, 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 but I'm curious about, about something. Um, you, you recently uh, shared a post on uh, on your Instagram feed, and uh, in the background was that uh, very famous uh, poster or replica of, of the of the poster uh, that says uh, "Play like a champion today." 
right? That very famous poster that, that actually most people associate with Notre Dame, although uh, college football history buffs uh, understand and know that that phrase actually originated at the University of Oklahoma in the 1940s with Coach Bud Wilkinson. Be that as it may, Notre mm -hmm. Dame popularized it. My question is, Sean, what does play like a champion today mean to you? Well, I've always loved the image of the Notre Dame players during a home game. So that sign is tacked up on the exit tunnel after they have their pregame or halftime speech and they're rushing out onto the field. And as they go out onto the field, they all slap the, um, you know, the, the, the sign that says play like a champion today. You know, and to me, it really, I, I love that image of the players, you know, kind of run, rushing out for the big game and tapping that on their way out. And to me, it's a really a reminder that, you know, when the big moment comes, you know, it's time to rise to the train for. And that, you know, if, if you've done all the hard work and you've done the two it is in camp, you know, and all the hard work that those players put in that when they go out on the field, they need to, you know, bring all of that with them and not leave anything in the tank. Um, and so when I had a chance to buy a poster and put it up in my workout room, it was one of the very first things that I, that I wanted to buy. Um, and I, you know, it, it, it gives me inspiration every workout when I'm down in my basement. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that, that's a, that, that's a, that, that leads me to this important follow-up question that is uh, it's in your workout room. Uh, it's, it's impossible for you to not see it. Although as I'm sure that you can appreciate with anything that we have um, uh, in a very visible location at some point, at some point we don't see it anymore consciously, but we subconsciously see it. And that, 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 that image and the spirit behind it guides uh, uh, or, or, or places a, an impression on our subconscious that guides us to action. Um, so, and I'm sure that's probably the case for you because you, I mean, you look at it every time you, you go into your workout space, you probably don't consciously see it, but for sure, subconsciously uh, you, you absorb that message. I mean, do you, do you literally, do you literally see it and think about it each day you're down in your, your workout area? Well, I think it's a mix because I have surrounded myself with things that inspire me. Um, you know, I have all my medals on one wall and all the marathon numbers that, you know, are framed and, um, but right across on the other side from that play like a champion flag is a poster that's got a number of motivational slogans on it. And uh, one of them is, um, don't stop when you're tired, stop when you're done. And I actually summon that consciously quite regularly when I'm in the middle of a set and I just like, I'm feeling fatigued, I want to stop, but I'm not kind of at full fatigue yet. Like I've got a couple reps to go and I see that and I'm like, all right, just, you know, keep going until you can't go anymore. You know, don't stop once it starts to get uncomfortable. So it's, it's surprising how often it provides me with conscious motivation. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, that, that, um, that thought and, and that sentiment re reminds me a little bit of, and I'll, I'll botch the, the David Goggins expression, but I thought, I think, and you may know this better than me, but I, 
I thought David Goggins has this, uh, I want to say it's a 60% rule, right? So when you, when you feel like you cannot go another step, you, you probably are only at 60% of your physical capacity, right? The truly, um, the, the difference that, that last 40% is mental. I think it's, it's actually flipped. I think it's a 40% rule that you've only hit, you know, 30 to 40% of your potential. Well, then that would be even more dramatic for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I, I read an excellent book um, within the last year um, called Endure um, by a, an endurance athlete called Alex Hutchinson. And he actually goes through and cites numerous scientific studies um, that where they measured endurance athletes when they were basically felt like they were at the point of wanting to stop. And by all kind of metabolic and physio physiological measures, they were only at about 30% of their, like, you know, literally your body will fail capacity. So the mind is sending them signals saying, hey, you know, don't, don't exert yourself too much. Um, don't put yourself into the danger zone, but they'd only hit 30% of their maximum capacity. So, you know, yes, there are physical limits on our body, but usually when we start to feel tired, we're not anywhere close to them. Uh, it also reminds me, uh, although I'm sure Benjamin Franklin was not referring to physical activity, when he <laughs> said fatigue makes cowards of us all. I'm almost positive he was talking about wartime, yeah. um, but but whether it's whether it's mental fatigue, uh, emotional fatigue, or physical fatigue, um, that uh, that expression, that quote from Ben Franklin, always rings in my in my mind. Sean, for the listener who doesn't know Sean Hoyt, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, you know, in many ways, I consider myself a fairly typical or average person. You know, I, I live out in the suburbs of a city. In this case, I'm north of Boston in a town called Medford. Um, I'm a lawyer. I work in a technology company. I have four children um, from a prior marriage, recently got remarried, and now I have this really fascinating, wonderful blended family with six kids. That's not quite as ordinary or average. Um, all young adults and teenagers. Um, I will say as an aside that my um, one of my daughters and I visited Wake Forest University in the last few months on a college visit and loved it. It is such a special, beautiful place, and she's still waiting to hear. So uh, it's we, still a possibility that I'll be in the Demon Deacon family. Well, best of best of luck to yep. her and 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 to you as well. So we're going, you know, in total, I'll be putting six kids through college over the course of eight years. So um, that's certainly my boss really appreciates it. That keeps me motivated to show up for work every day. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to retire anytime soon. Um, the other part of my life, though, that I think has you know, becoming less average as I get older is that I, as I get older, I become more committed and more focused on kind of fitness and endurance and um, not less. It's going in the, you know, positive direction and not the negative direction. And I feel like I've been able to actually improve instead of decline. And uh, what really surprised me in all of that too, was that in the last year or so, I became really focused on the mindset behind it. And what, what was I learning from all of this? Um, and how do I capture that so that I could pass it on to my children? Um, and I, well, you know, I can talk later about what I ultimately decided to do, but as I started documenting it and sharing it, I was surprised that actually my kids, you know, so far, you know, they, they probably show a little bit of interest in it, but my peers, 
um, and people at you know my age have have really responded to it in a way that I didn't expect, and and that's been a lot of fun for me. It's been very motivating and and encouraging. So that's like a whole new chapter of my life um, that is now opening up before me, and uh, it feels very healthy. Well, that's in in a big way. That's how uh, you and I came to know each other, um, and I it, it's 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 really a little bit of an interesting story. And and, and as I said in our in our pre show interview. Um, how you and I came to know each other is a little bit novel um, in that um, we've we have never met in person until until just today. Mm -hmm. um, but we follow each other on social media, specifically on Instagram. And I don't know and I can't remember if it was if it was me that discovered you and began to follow you or you that discovered me and began to follow me. I don't necessarily remember how that how that went. Be that as it may, um, I find you one of the more uh, fascinating and interesting people um, on Instagram who who I follow um, for any number of reasons. I mean, we we we, we share a couple of common interests. Uh, I mean, we're both New Englanders, although as you will share, uh, you uh, you are originally from from afar, from somewhere else, but but you live in New England now. Uh, we're both north of the age of 50, and, uh, and we both share a personal passion for, for fitness. Um, and I also really, I, I appreciate and I admire um, your, um, your inspirational messages uh, and, uh, and sort of your ethos and how you, at least how you present yourself uh, on, on, on Instagram. Um, I mean, do you remember the story any, any differently than that in terms of how you and I came to know each other? What I remember, Chris, is that um, you you do some beautiful um, snow runs. Um, and in the last couple of years, I live near the Middlesex Fells Reservation that has lots of trails. And when it snows, um, all of a sudden I was started um, exploring, like, can I run in the snow? Is it is that a thing that you can do? And once I got out there, I realized I love it. It is so peaceful and serene. And so I follow a number of hashtags around trail running. And when I saw some of your runs up in New Hampshire in the snow, that's where I was like, all right, I got to follow this guy. Um, because he, he, he's, we're kindred spirits in that regard. Um, once you've learned the joys of running in the snow in the woods, um, you just can't ever go back. <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, it's really kind of, it, it's fascinating to me that you and I have not crossed paths um, outside, uh, outside of social media, because we do share uh, a number of, of common interests. Um, so, okay, well, then that, uh, then th that's a much better story than I, uh, <laughs> than, than I had for, for how you and I came to know each other. Um, anyway, here, here we are. And uh, I asked you to be on the show. Um, because again, I, I, you, you're an excellent model of uh of fitness after 50 um uh not only in the in the in the in the very physical part of of what that means but also in the mindset approach to fitness after 50 and we're going to explore that uh quite a bit in just a moment but before we do that um i want to i want to have you share a little bit about your about your 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 background in fitness and your journey to, to get to this point from a fitness perspective, but let's, let's start with, let's start with, with, with why, because I, I, I always feel like that's a, that's a pretty baseline place to start. So 
Um, I, I don't know if you've if you've read the book Start with Why by Simon Sinek, but but in in that in Sinek's best selling book Start with Why, he says that that anyone can explain what they do. Some can explain how they do it, but very few can articulate why they do what they do. Um, in a in a related book by a different author, Brian Morin, in his in his the twelve week year, Morin describes this why as something called vision, and it's actually the pro the approach that I take as well. Now, in this case, vision is the ability to craft a powerfully inspirational image of who you want to be, right? And that this incredibly powerful. Um, this, this becomes incredibly powerful, um, uh, because it's vision that drives us to productivity in the moments when we don't simply feel like it. Right. Uh, I think, I think Morin also refers to, um, um, being excellent in the moment. It, it's almost like that, 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 that famous poster of play like a champion today, right? Not play like a champion, you know, uh, two months from now when, 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 when we, when we get to, uh, you know, the, 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 the playoffs or the games that matter the most, but play like a champion today, right? Whether that's, whether that's going out and practicing, uh, whether that's a, a preseason scrimmage or, or whether that, 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 that's a moment that really matters. Um, so, so Sean, what, what's your vision? You know, for most of my life, my vision with respect to fitness and health has been very um, situational. And there's been times when I had an event that galvanized me and I had a very strong kind of why around that event and times when I had none. And I was kind of just, you know, maybe just kind of doing things more from habit. Um, but certainly once I kind of got into my 40s, uh, I started to have a a consistent driving vision that has stayed with me and has only gotten stronger. And, you know, there's been a couple points during, as I've gotten older, where, you know, all of a sudden I thought, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm at the end. You have a big injury. Um, you feel like, okay, now I have to stop. I have to, it's time to throttle this back. It's time to accept that I'm on my decline. Um, but then in each of those cases, something inside of me said, you know what, like, don't, don't accept that so easily. Like, go out there and see if there's something you can do and if there's a way you can push through this and get better. Um, and any obstacle that comes in your way isn't like you don't have to take it as, oh, that is what it is. Instead, you can go out there and, and try to, you know, kind of figure out, okay, how, how am I going to work around this? And maybe it'll even get me stronger. Um, and so that's become my why, which is to say, you know, what am I capable of? Um, if I push myself and I work on the areas where I'm weak, try to turn them into strengths, you know, stay focused, put in the effort, um, play like a champion on game day. Like, what can I achieve? And I've really surprised myself. And then that's led me to, to think, okay, like, you know, um, how can I apply that to all areas of my life? And, that, and, and at first, that all felt very selfish. Um, like I was just focusing on me, 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 be my best me is kind of one of my taglines um, or it was. But then I started to realize that other people were watching me and they were taking inspiration from it. And I was, so then I was like, okay, how do I turn that outward 
And now part of my why is to, okay, I'm going to do this for myself, but I'm also going to support others and, you know, finding out a way that they can become even better as they get older versus, you know, managing a, a, an acceptable decline. Mm. Yeah. And in my experience, um, focusing on your why is, is, isn't, isn't selfish because, you know, you being the best version of you physically, spiritually, emotionally means that you're able to give of yourself to the people that matter the most to you um, in a way that is full and complete. Um, Unfortunately, I, I think I, I think what happens with a lot of people is that um, is that they they not only don't put themselves first, but they prioritize themselves third or fourth or fifth or sixth or eighth or tenth on the priority list. And while seemingly that seems very altruistic that uh, that 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 you that you completely live your life in the service of others at some point without tending to your own physical, spiritual, emotional needs, you become a somewhat hollow, empty shell, incapable of giving any more of yourself. Right. So, um, I mean, I have always felt that, um, in order to me, in order for me to give my energy and my positively freely out into the universe, I must have ways to to internally regenerate that energy and that positivity. And at least in part, for me, it's it's taking care of myself. Do you find that that's the case for you too, Sean? Well, um, you know, I've learned over the years, especially with my children, that you know, there's a big difference between quantity and quality. Um, and you can be the person that gives away massive quantities of your time to other people. Um, and, and I, you know, that's very selfless. And I respect that for people, you know, who kind of put, again, put themselves at the bottom. Um, but oftentimes what I've seen is that if you're not feeding yourself, that what you're giving isn't high quality or it isn't as high quality as it can be because you're not radiating all of the energy that you could radiate out and, you know, people feed off of your energy. And when your energy is positive and you're happy and you're vibrant and you've got vitality, then people that raises people up. And so, you know, the, the old adage on the airplane about put your oxygen mask on first and then help your child. You know, I think if you make sure that you're feeding yourself, then you have so much more quality to give to all the people in your life. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really, it's well said. Um, well, let's talk about how your, your fitness journey began. Um, so take us back to Overland Park, Kansas, right? Where, um, uh, where, where, uh, where you spent your teenage years. Um, how and why did fitness become important to you then? So for most of growing up, I was, I was not athletic in any way. I was on the sports teams, but I usually was like on the bench and kind of came in for, you know, some part of the game and I would rarely do anything interesting. I was probably, I was, you know, I was a chubby kid and, you know, I liked to, to kind of play video games and Dungeons and Dragons with my friends and, you know, 
I, I was I was happy. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, you know, when it came time to the presidential physical fitness test every year, you know, half of them I couldn't even do. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think I could do a pull up, <laughs> and um, and then we had to do this mile run. And every year I was like struggling and kind of at the very back of the pack. And uh, you know, I think some part of that always ate at me, and you know, kind of I didn't like it, but never really thought about doing anything about it. And then what happened is my stepfather um, was um, starting to do local runs. And so he would do 5Ks in in the area. And, um, you know, I was just kind of watching him do that. And I don't know whether whether he invited me or I kind of asked to be invited, but um, he signed me up for one of the 5Ks. And it was the first one I ever did. It was called the Law Day Run because it ran through where all the law firms were in kind of suburban Kansas City. Um, and, uh, you know, I trained with him and it was, I actually did it and was kind of surprised myself, but also my, it transformed me. Um, I was, I quickly lost, you know, the kind of chubby adolescent weight. Now I was lean and I was pretty fast. Um, but all of this had been in my neighborhood or with my stepdad, nobody at school really knew I was doing any of this other than maybe to notice I had lost some weight. So, um, you know, I started to think about, you know, kind of what, um, you know, what if, um, you know, what, what could I, what was I capable of doing if I really tried? And so um, I decided to use the next, the eighth grade physical fitness mile to kind of be my test. I didn't tell anybody about it. I was super quiet about it because I was, you know, what if I failed and what if I couldn't do it? But I would run laps around my neighborhood as fast as I could and um, was really, you know, aiming to, to kind of, you know, kind of surprise everyone at that race. And, um, you know, I went out the first lap or two and I was, you know, running up there with the star athletes and, you know, I could hear people snickering, you know, what was I doing up there? And, oh yeah, he's going to fade. But by mile three, they were starting to fade. And I was, I, you know, knew I could finish that off. And I ended up kind of giving it everything I had and set the school record um, for the eighth grade mile. And, you know, that was a huge wake up call to me that if I put the work in and I believed in myself, I could not only be good, I could be really good. Um, And I will never forget how that felt. Um, And it, you know, really is true that, you know, saying that, you know, pain is temporary, but pride is forever. You know, yeah, I kind of probably had, you know, my gut was burning and I probably had a cramp, but, you know, they could never take that away from me. I really like that idea of, uh, uh, of, of asking yourself the question, what if, you know, again, it, it, it reminds me, um, of, uh, of, uh, Brian Morin's book, the, the 12 week year in which, in which in the book, he describes this process of going from, uh, from, uh, impossible to given, Right. Um, and, and, you know, with, with social media now, there's of course no, no shortage of examples of people doing amazingly epic things. Right. Uh, and, and when we begin to consider an achievement that's well beyond what we have uh, recently accomplished, the question that most people ask is how would I do this? Right. But, but of course the, the trouble with that question is that if you knew the answer to it, you'd already be doing it. Right. And, 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 
Um, and, and you know, when we when we emphasize the fact that we don't know the answer to something, um, it 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 creates this perception of impossibility. So I actually think, and and, and this this is from from Morin's book, but and I and I, I practice this both personally and professionally. But so I really think the first step to accomplishing the impossible. Which is which is very similar to what you did by setting the school record right in in the eighth grade is is to move from impossibility thinking to possibility thinking by asking the question which you asked, which is what if? Because that question, John, gives you the permission to entertain the possibility, right? And when you crack the door on that idea your desire to achieve is intensified. Um, and in fact, that's not the first time that you, that you would ask yourself uh, the, the, the question of what if. But before we, before we, we get to that and we, and we fast forward uh, to Notre Dame, um, <laughs> you also did, you did something that's, I think, quite unique as a 14-year-old. Um, you ran a marathon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> How did that come about? Well, it was so unique that I actually had to get a doctor's permission to do it. Um, you know, and I was the youngest runner to finish that race. But it's a great example, maybe, of kind of shifting from impossible to the possibility thinking, because going into that year, it never would have occurred to me. Like, I literally was not anything that was on my radar screen at all. I was a freshman at, in high school. I was running freshman uh, cross country. And my coach saw some promise in me and mid-season um, said, I want you to run in practice with the varsity. Like you won't be running in races, but I want you to train with the varsity so that next year you can step up and, and be in, on the varsity team as a sophomore. So I was intimidated, but honored. And I started running with the varsity athletes in, in our practices. And, you know, they kind of took a liking to me. I was their little pet, you know, um, and as we got towards the end of the season, they, they said, well, Sean, like, you know, the varsity, you know, athletes have a tradition that at the end of the season, after we wrap up the state meet, we run the Kansas City Marathon, which then was called the Macy's Marathon. Um, that happens a couple of weeks after the end of the season. Like we're already in shape. You know, it's just kind of what it's just an ongoing tradition for the varsity team. So, you know, you're going to have to run it with us now. And I, of course, thought they were joking and they probably were. So I laughed it off. It seemed impossible. But then, you know, they the joke, they kept it up. And as I was running with them, eventually I started to say, well, you know, you know, what if I could do this? Like I am training with them. I'm doing the same training they are. I'm a couple of years younger, but, you know, maybe this is possible. And uh, I think it was just a, a desire to want to, you know, impress them, but also a desire to see, like, was I really capable of this? And so I just let the joke become a reality. Um, and I never, uh, just, you know, got signed up and, and, um, ended up doing it. And, you know, the last six miles were pure agony because, you know, we weren't running 20 plus miles and training, you know, our longest runs were probably 12 or, or 13. And maybe we did a couple of long training runs, but, you know, in, in retrospect, I was pushing my limit there, but I, I did it. I didn't walk. Um, I finished under four hours. Um, and I was, you know, they mentioned on TV that I was out there as the youngest runner in the race. And um, I was just showing my wife some pictures of that day. And um, 
afterwards I looked like, you know, like I had lost my best friend. I mean, I was so, so fatigued. There was no joy in my face at the time. Um, but now years later, I have the poster in my workout room. I have the number framed, you know, and it's a source of pride for me that, you know, that I kind of was able to do something that seemed crazy at the time. Or said a different way that seemed impossible yes. at the time. But again, another example of going from uh, impossibility to given. Now, there's a couple of intermediate steps, of course, to go from impossibility to given. You got to go from impossibility to possibility, right? By asking yourself that question, what if? Yeah. What if I dedicated myself to actually finish a marathon? Um, then it became a possibility in your mind, right? And then as you began to, to imagine yourself completing this task, possibility turned into probability. And the probability of you finishing the event, uh, that probability increased at some point with enough consistency, Sean, you went from probability to given, right? Um, and I, again, I just, I, I think it's a really neat example of this, this, this turning something that's seemingly impossible to something that is a, that is a given. Now, I, I referenced uh, a moment ago, uh, uh, another example of, of this, of this question that you ask, that is, what if, so you, you get to Notre Dame and um, you've got, uh, you've got a, there's a, there's a buddy, there's a, there's a doorm mate um, mm -hmm. who, 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 who approached you with a proposition related to running. <laughs> what, what was that all about, Sean? And, 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 and how did that proposition turn into yet another example of you asking yourself that question, what if? Yeah, in this case, I was there. I was actually the proposer. Okay. Um, but so what happened is I had run that first marathon in, in at 14, and I think 353, something like that. And then I ran a two more in high school and kind of shaved 10 minutes off each time. Maybe I was down to like 3.30. And then I ran one kind of maybe sophomore year at Notre Dame that I was got down to like 3.16. And um, all of a sudden, you know, at 316, I was like, well, you know, what if I could break three? Like, maybe it's not impossible. Like, I'm within striking distance. Like, could I do this? And then, you know, what I, what I knew that instinctively, though, is that I, I needed help. Um, I needed somebody who was fast. Because at that point, I was disciplined. I knew how to train for a marathon. You know, I could go out and do the long runs. and But I needed somebody who would push the speed. And so there was this uh, guy, guy in my door named Matt Boyle, lean. And I, I knew, you know, from running around campus, he was a fast runner. And so I went up to him and I said, Matt, I got an idea. And I said, what, you know, because he'd never done a marathon before. And um, I said, what if we ran together and we trained? Um, I'll help you with the distance. You help me with the speed. And our goal will be to break three hours and we'll find a flat marathon where, you know, where the course is conducive. And what do you think? And God love him. He's, you know, he'd never done one of these before, but he was like, okay, 
let's do it. Um, and Matt and I, I, I remember these vividly. We would go out for these long runs on these, you know, uh, wide open country roads north of uh, South Bend, Indiana. And, um, you know, he would, you know, he would push, he would be out in the lead for a while, you know, pushing the pace and you know, making me run faster than I was used to running in my training. And then I would, you know, kind of nudge in front of him once it started to get into the longer distances and he would have to keep up with me. And uh, we put in some really, really quality training um, together um, with that, you know, that push and pull. Um, and then we got to race day and I remember getting to about mile 22 or so and we were on pace um, and he was starting to fade a little bit. And I was like, man, like, do you want me to stick back with you and kind of help you through? And he's like, nope, Sean. He's like, you got this. And he's like, and don't worry, like, I'm going to pull through. And I was like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, cause we both got to do this. And he's like, I know. He's like, trust me, I'll be there. So I took off and, you know, kind of, uh, was feeling, I, you know, I remember the time just feeling like a, a, that last surge of energy. And then I crossed in 254 and waited with bated breath. And sure enough at 258, Matt comes running across the line. And, um, I just remember like, oh my God, we broke three hours. This is, this is amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I was 21 or, you know, so it was a little bit easier than it would be today, but, you know, we did it. Um, and like I said, they can never take that away from me. It's something that I'll always have. And um, I, I think back to that day with a, a lot of pride about kind of, you know, you set a goal and you put in the work and then you actually got to show up on the big day and do it. Like, you know, we, we, we gave it everything we had that day. Like you can, you know, you can't forget that part. Um, but if you do all three of those things together, amazing things can happen. For sure. Um, you know, a, a, a common story uh, for, uh, for many folks um, who were uh, athletic and active um, in, their, in their formative years and, and through college, a, a common story is that uh, after college, the combination of, of work and family um, uh, results in physical activity or, or fitness uh, or exercise or training uh, pushed to the background while, while other things like family and career uh, become central to our, our focus, attention and energy. What happened with you, uh, Sean, after, uh, after undergrad um, from a, you know, from a, from a, a, a life and, and, and career standpoint, how did that impact your, uh, your, your fitness and, and your passion for fitness? You know, what, what really threw me for um, kind of a curve uh, was uh, not, you know, I, cause I went to law school after Notre Dame. That's what brought me up to Boston. Um, I got off at the, I got at the very last second, um, like way late in this, in the, you know, the enrollment season, after I'd already picked my school in, in um, Chicago and enrolled at Northwestern Law School, like really, really late, like maybe mid-June, I get this letter from Harvard Law School saying I'd been uh, selected off the wait list, which kind of blew my mind. And, um, you know, so that's how I ended up in, in Boston um, as a very, very late entrance to the school. But it, it does go sh to show you that you never know unless you try. Like, I certainly didn't think I was going to ever go to Harvard Law School, but unless you apply, you know, you, maybe you'll get in. And sure enough, I did late. 
Um, but so I got to school and, um, you know, I was able to stay fit during law school. There's still time to run. But is, as a young lawyer is when, you know, I really fell off, the, you know, uh, of the habit. Um, I was working 70, 80 hours a week. You'd eat at your desk four or five nights a week, you know, work till 11 o'clock and, you know, get back up and come back in at, um, you know, at uh, eight o'clock or nine o'clock the next morning. And it was all about billable hours. So, you know, you didn't want to be away from the office because then you would be missing out on billable hours and you had a target to hit and your prestige in the firm and your advancement and pay were somewhat pegged to billable hours. So it was this bad cycle that rewarded you for being there in the office and penalized you for being away. Um, and so over that stretch, I basically gave up running and anything and put on 25 pounds. And, um, you know, I definitely, uh, you know, that was about six years um, for me. Um, and then I had this blessed moment. I switched. Eventually I decided I, I, um, I had my first child. I was kind of ready for a little bit better balance. So I decided to work, go to a tech company. Um, and that was my first taste of working within technology. And um, this company had this really neat ethic where there was co-CEOs and they shared an office. And so they wanted to send this egalitarian view that it, nobody should have their own office. Either you sit out in the open or you share an office. So I shared an office with another lawyer and um, uh, her father worked for the group that ran the Boston Marathon. Um, and so she knew that I used to run marathons. And one day she's like, hey, if I could get you, if there end up being a left, any leftover numbers and I can get you into the marathon, would you run it? And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I am so out of shape. I haven't run like meaningfully in six years, but wow. Like, you know, if I could get a chance to run the Boston marathon, like how can I turn that down? Like, I just realized that was a, uh, a miracle dropped in my lap. Um, and I knew I couldn't say no to that. It was way too big of an, of an opportunity and an honor. So I said, if you get me a number, I will run. Um, and uh, so she did. Um, she came through and I started training. I, I will never run a marathon without being prepared. I have too much respect for the distance. So I trained hard. I lost all that weight. Um, ran a 326. Um, this was 20, this was 2001. So um, 22 years ago. And, um, you know, I haven't stopped running since, and I never will, um, you know, now that I'm in the mindset that I'm in. So I had my brief period where I got away from it and, you know, my health <laughs> suffered and my fitness suffered and I've learned my lesson. That won't, that won't happen again, Chris. Um, <laughs> it's, it's funny how the universe lines up sometimes, right? Uh, I mean, had, had you, had you not shared the office with that woman, perhaps at some point, maybe in the cafeteria or in a social gathering, that 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 conversation would have come up. However, there you were, there she was, with this amazing opportunity, right to to sort of reboot. You know your 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 passion for fitness, and uh, I, I it's a it's a great story. Did. Did you ever run the Boston Marathon again, or were you were you one and done with that with the marathon? The so here's when we here's when we get back to the you know the the what if moments keep coming, um, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, but I'm back to another what if moment, um, because for many years when I was having knee pain in my 40s and other things, I said I, my marathon days are behind me. Like I ran six, 
I broke three, like I've run Boston. I'm, you know, I had a great run. Um, but that distance, this isn't for me anymore. You know, now I'll run 10 K's and half marathons. Um, but now, you know, eventually I said, you know what, like, what if I could address the things that are causing my knees to hurt? You know, what if I could do PT and, and work on, you know, muscles, uh, strengthening my joints and doing things that relieve pressure on the knees. If I could change my running form to be, you know, to not put so much pressure there, could I do another marathon? And now I've decided emphatically yes. Um, and so I decided that I'm going to do a charity run in 2024 um, for Jocelyn Diabetes, um, if they will have me. Um, I have a son who's type one, and it would be a great honor to me to be able to raise money for that cause and to get back and do the Boston Marathon 23 years later um, at age 55. So I think that would be really cool. And I'm not stopping there, Chris. I've, I've also... Um, taken that same another thing that i always thought was impossible was to do a full ironman which is kind of for me my ultimate the ultimate goal of fitness for me like that's the pinnacle um which is to do a whole 140.6 and once i realized that a marathon was impossible i employed another trick from mr david goggins which is um what he calls doing the math which is if any task seems impossible break it down into its component parts and think about, okay, like, well, how much time would I have for the swim and how much time would I have for the bike and how much time would I have for the run? And when I, when you realize you have 17 hours to complete the whole thing, to be an official qualifier, and I know what my times are in each of those individual disciplines, all of a sudden I realize I think I can do that in 17 hours. Um, and so all of a sudden what seemed impossible now is like, I think I can do this. And so um, I've, I've, told, I've told my friends and family, because that's the best form of accountability for me is to publicly tell people I'm doing something. Agreed. Um, I've, I've told everybody I'm going to do a full Ironman. Um, so now I'm committed and I got to figure out how to do this. Um, but those are the two things in my future that the what if moments have brought about, which is uh, the, my next Boston and um, a, a full iron. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so let's. That's a that's a, that's an excellent segue uh, into uh, into fit after fifty, um, with uh, uh, <laughs> with a return to the Boston Marathon uh, and a uh, a full Ironman. Uh, you know, at at the age of at at the age of fifty four, fifty five. Um, you know, the the elements of nutrition and fitness and recovery and, and mindset, uh, for me, uh, anyway, and I, and I, I'm, I'm curious your, your take on this, those four elements, um, end up, end up being really important for us beyond the age of 50, uh, with respect to creating, uh, harmony in our fitness. You know, we just, again, you, you you know this to be true because you were uh, you know you were an athlete in your twenties. We can't muscle through the training in our fifties the way we might have muscled through the training in our twenties. Of course, we know more about those four domains: nutrition, fitness, recovery, and mindset than we did you know thirty plus years ago. So we have the advantage of that. Um, so let's let's talk about those four areas, Sean, because um, 
you know, as I as I said uh, at the beginning, I think you have a lot to offer in your you know your your experience uh, uh, as a as a as a fifty plus year old athlete is uh, is really important because you're my take is you're you're not just walking the walk or you're just talking the talk but you're walking the walk as well i know this because i because I, I follow along with your journey so you know with, with the idea of a return to the boston marathon imminent uh and this uh um and this and this this, this other big goal out there finishing your first ironman distance triathlon after the age of 50 um let's get into the weeds a little bit about those four domains of nutrition, fitness, recovery, and mindset. Um, and I don't necessarily, uh, uh, I, I haven't put them in that order for any particular reason. Um, so let's, let's take them one at a time and let's talk about them. In fact, we can absolutely have a little bit of a back and forth here too, as, as you and I get an opportunity to share um, what we've learned as 50 plus year old athletes um, in these areas. Let's start with, with nutrition, uh, Sean. Give me, um, without, without getting too specific, right, you know, at least, at least at the outset, um, give me your overarching 50,000 foot view of nutrition as a, a, and the importance of it for you as a 50 plus year old athlete. Well, let me start by saying I have a lot to learn here. So, Chris, I would love to hear what you're doing because most of my life, I just figured out if I, I figured if I worked out hard enough and ran enough miles, I could eat whatever I wanted. Um, and that's really not a good strategy. And I've come to realize that it actually doesn't even work once you get to a certain age anymore. I can run 13 miles a day and still gain weight if I'm kind of eating without being thoughtful about it. I also discovered a few years ago that I've got some congenital heart you know, uh, issues that I need to pay attention to that, you know, kind of had some scary health outcomes for members of my family. So I've, you know, want to eat healthy for that reason as well. Um, so really what I do now is I try to focus on a few things. Number one is I, I do watch, I do track my calories. Um, I find that when I do, I learn a lot more about what I'm eating and how it's composed. Um, and when I don't, I tend to eat mindlessly and I get myself in trouble. So there's a discipline and an awareness that comes from tracking what you eat and knowing what's in it that then I think helps me make better decisions. I use an app called My Fitness Pal that makes it super easy to track what I'm what I'm eating. And then it also knows what I've done for exercise. So every day I can see on a net basis am I, you know, am I burning more calories than I'm consuming. And I just find that information to be super helpful. Um, I also have a, uh, try to keep to a, a mix of, um, protein versus carbs where I'm trying to keep them, you know, um, I think it's usually 40% of my calories come from carbs and 30% come from protein, which ends up being like, a, I try to do at least a hundred and hundred plus grams of protein a day. Um, and that tends to help me also, if I do that, it's easier to stick to the calorie goal when you eat less carbs and more protein. Um, and then I also, this isn't for everyone and I don't recommend it to people unless it works for you, but I also do the 16 hour, eight hour version of intermittent fasting where I try to stop eating by like, you know, eight o'clock roughly every night and not resume eating until about noon the next day. 
I find that that kind of really helps my body to reset and to, you know, kind of get, I feel, I feel really focused and clear in the mornings. Haven't had any sugar yet. My body's not trying to like pump out insulin to kind of battle like a big muffin that I had that morning. Um, so those are things that work for me. Um, the other thing that I believe strongly in is that there should be no absolutes. I, I won't do anything that's like you can't have any carbs or you can't have any sugar. Like for me, if there's, if something is off limits, I'm going to, I'm going to resent it and I'm, and I'm not going to be able to stick to it. I'm a firm believer that if you practice things in moderation, it's part of the reason I love intermittent fasting is I can eat whatever I want as long as I eat it within a certain time of day. If I'm craving a pecan roll, fine, just have it at noon instead of seven in the morning. Um, and I don't feel deprived because I'm not, there's not foods that I want to eat that I can't. Uh <laughs> It's quite remarkable. <laughs> you, you and I have never had this conversation, <laughs> correct? No, never. Yeah, we've we've never had this conversation. And um, <laughs> those folks that that know me, um, uh, listening to you, um, <laughs> will will have heard uh, what I uh, have consistently preached for many years, which is actually everything that you just said. <laughs> Interestingly perhaps not interestingly um, enough. So I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> it's wow. Re it's really quite, quite remarkable. Uh, it's a, this is an audio podcast, but if the, if the listener could see my face, I, uh, I had a smile from ear to ear as you were describing <laughs> your approach to nutrition, because it, it is, it is exactly my approach as well. And, and so let me, let me reiterate uh, some of the things that, that you said and, and, and put some emphasis on them. Uh, first of all, tracking calories. Uh, I also use uh, the app, my fitness pal. Uh, and it is, uh, when, when I am, when I am really dialed in and I am really focused, um, there there's, there's no substitute in my opinion for tracking calories because it, um, it, it, it helps you to hold yourself accountable to, to two important things nutritionally. And I think those two things are, calorie discipline and macronutrient distribution because like you when i'm <clears throat> when i'm tracking my calories i am much less likely to eat mindlessly for reasons outside of actual hunger you know it's not <laughs> eating is so closely tied to other behaviors that oftentimes we eat not out of physiologic hunger, but we eat out of pure association. So that, you know, when you're sitting on the couch in the evening or you're sitting in your easy chair and you're watching television, you're having a snack, not because you're actually physiologically hungry, but because you have such a tight association between watching television and eating something crunchy and salty um, that your, 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 your brain just can't can't, can't figure a way out of that habit. Um, but, but tracking calories, uh, almost always for me negates that because I'm sure like you, I have to think very purposefully about what I, what I am getting ready to eat. And I have to ask myself before I eat it. Um, first of all, am I really hungry because I have a calorie budget for the day and that calorie budget is my basal metabolic rate plus my physical activity uh, expended calories today. So for instance, if my 
typically my basal metabolic rate is around 1700 calories, right? And, and if I have a 500 calorie physical activity day, 1700 plus 500 is 2200 calories. My, my calorie budget for the day, therefore, would be 22 calorie, 2200 calories if I wanted to zero out the day. Now, to your point, if I wanted to end in a caloric deficit, I would eat less than 2,200 calories, but never less than my basal metabolic rate. So my baseline calorie intake is always my basal metabolic rate, 1,700 calories. Right? I, I, then, I, then I will account for my physical activity calories in order to determine what, you know, what are my, additionally, what are my nutritional choices? It kind of gets back to this idea of this very, very little mindless eating when you're tracking calories. And then like you, a secondary consideration is always macronutrient distribution. But a little bit, I, 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 I differ from you just slightly, Sean, in my targeted macronutrient distribution when I'm really focused um, and, I, and my objective is to cut uh, body mass or more specifically, I want to lose body fat. Which and, and increase skeletal muscle mass, which is absolutely possible beyond the age of 50, mm -hmm. regardless Agreed. of what the textbooks and the popular yeah. magazines will tell you. It is possible for, 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 for folks in their 50s to optimize body mass and, and lose body fat, gain lean, lean muscle mass if you can, A, be disciplined from a, a calorie standpoint, and B, hit your macronutrient target. So my macro, my, my macronutrient targets are just a little different from yours. I flip around my protein and carbohydrate macronutrients. So what I'm really dialed in, uh, I'm 40% of my calories from protein, 30% of my calories from carbohydrate, 30% of my calories from fat. And, 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 you know, that the, the, the distribution, the shift really comes in, in uh, carbohydrates and fat. Those two might shift around a little bit, but again, I'm, when I'm really focused, I'm hitting that 40% of my calories from protein. And I, I really like the point that you made when you're hitting your protein target. Because what, what, one, one of the things that we know is that, um, is that carbohydrates tend to switch on our hunger switches in the brain, right? Sean, you've had this experience where, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of craving something. You, you, you favor something that's high in carbohydrate as a snack. Yeah. You, you, you become temporarily sated, like, okay, I'm not hungry anymore. 15 minutes later, you're <laughs> yeah, right. looking for yeah, more yeah. carbohydrates, right? Because carbohydrates yeah. are not terribly effective at switching off the hunger switches in our brain. That's converse to proteins, though. Proteins tend to switch off our hunger switches. And so favoring a snack that's a little higher in protein not only sates us, um, uh, you know, in, in the moment, but that satiation carries over. So we're a little bit less likely to mindlessly snack later on. And then, and then the last thing that I'll say about, uh, well, actually two other things I'll say about nutrition. I too, 16 and eight intermittent fast. Love it. Um, I have been doing that, um, consistently every other day for going on two years now. Now, for me, the caveat is that I only intermittent fast on my non-strength days. So when I'm, if, if, if today is a strength training day, and actually today was a strength training day for me, um, I'm going to have a breakfast in the morning. 
And right now my pattern is strength training every other day. And so on my non-strength, my, my non-strength days are my quote unquote endurance days in which I'll go for an hour run with, with the dogs. On those days, on my endurance days, those are the days that I will be in that 16 and 8 intermittent fast. And my endurance activity, my one hour endurance activity, which is typically a, an hour trail or mountain run, is almost always done in the last few hours of that 16 hour fast, right? So when I'm at, you know, somewhere between 12 and, and or 13 and 15 hours in that 16 hour fast, that's the window that I'm doing an hour of endurance activity. And I will tell you, and I'm, I'm curious to get your take on this. I have, I have not, and do not notice any performance decrement related to exercising uh, more specifically trail running or mountain running within the last sort of two or three hour window of that intermittent fast. I do not feel depleted. I do not feel at all that my performance is compromised. Um, Sean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on the combination of, um, uh, of, of intermittent fasting and your, I mean, we're going to talk about fitness in just a moment, but, but, uh, put the intermittent fast in the context of your, of your physical activity, uh, on any given day. When I first started doing it, cause I work out in the mornings, it's the only time that I can religiously and reliably get it done. So I was struggling with how do I balance the two of these? And, you know, I, I probably work out you know, six days a week. So um, how do I balance the two? And at first I thought, especially with running, like I'm just not going to be able to have any quality runs. Um, but once I went out and did a few, um, I realized my body adapted. Um, and I don't know if it just kind of learns to, okay, now there's no carbohydrate source coming. So I'm going to have to find another source and uses fat as an energy source, but it, it, it happens. Your body adapts. And I find now I go out and run, now, I draw the line at about 10 miles. If I'm going to run under 10 or under, I can do it fasted. If I'm going out for like a 13, you know, or something like that, I'm going to need some fuel along the way or else I kind of bonk at the end of that. Um, but I can run an, an hour like you, at, at least an hour, maybe a little bit, a little bit more, probably an hour and 20 minutes. I can do that fasted and no problem. Um, so I agree with you. I think the body does adapt. And then I, I like to know that, you know, not immediately after, but relatively soon after that, I can have a replenishing meal, you know, that's going to give me those, those recover, you know, the help of my recovery, like some yogurt and banana and, and peanut butter and things like that, that are going to kind of help me refuel. Mm. Um, yeah, very similar experience. And, and in fact, the, the athletes that I coach uh, who do use intermittent fasting or, uh, who do their long training, endurance specific training activities in a fasted state, generally 90 minutes is the cutoff, right? So if the activity is less than 90 minutes, doing it, doing it in a fasted state um, and, and performing the activity without additional uh, supplemental calories is completely appropriate. You're right though, beyond, beyond 90 minutes um, is when, um, I mean, if you were to, to, to use calories, supplemental calories within activity, I think it's entirely appropriate beyond 90 minutes. Now that said, um, I have had athletes, um, uh, train with this approach, uh, and experience something called uh, fat adaptation, uh, the ability metabolically to shift earlier and more preferentially to fat as a fuel source. 
right? We know from exercise physiology that the lower the intensity of the activity, the greater the reliance on fat as a fuel source. I mean, there's, there's in terms of fuel um, sources, the body always runs on a, com on a combination of, of fat and carbohydrate. But that fuel source utilization uh, shifts more toward fat as a fuel source, the lower the activity intensity. The converse of that is also true, though, as the activity intensity increases, um, the body has to rely more preferentially on carbohydrate as a fuel source. Generally speaking, though, endurance sports, like any endurance activity that would last at least 90 minutes, it's generally going to be done at a lower intensity, right? I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't run, you yeah. can't run at your one mile race pace for, mm -hmm. you know, for 90 minutes. I mean, that's just, it's ridiculous, but that's the, that's the point is that, um, is that there is this shift in fuel source utilization, depending on the intensity of the activity. So, um, so, so folks that, that are, that start an activity in a fasted state and intend to, withhold carbohydrates or withhold feeding during activity. Um, I have actually seen endurance athletes get up as much as, uh, or, or, or get to a point where they can do, you know, four to five hours of sustained endurance activity, like running or cycling in a fasted state before they feel like they need to take in supplemental calories. So again, I, you, you are exactly correct that the, that the body can adapt to that fasted condition, um, and actually do some pretty, pretty amazing things. Now, I mean, what I will say about that is that if we are withholding calories, uh, during, uh, during a longer endurance, act, uh, longer activity in endurance, uh, sport, um, we are making sure that we are taking care of our hydration needs and our electrolyte needs. So I never have athletes withhold fluids or electrolytes. And I will also say too that, um, and 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 I wonder if this is the case for you because occasionally is for me that um, on on the days that I fast, uh, I I may have a very low calorie electrolyte beverage. Um, like noon is an example of mm -hmm. electrolyte beverage, or Element uh, is an example of a low calorie electrolyte drink that's you know less than than fifteen or twenty calories. That does not technically break the fast for me. I agree. And for my endurance athletes um, that are performing these uh, endurance activities in a fasted state, um, those low calorie electrolyte drinks also do not uh, uh, necessarily negatively impact that that adaptation. Um, and, 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 and the last follow up thing that I, I will say about what you said in terms of no absolutes, I also agree 100 um, percent. I believe that that you can eat whatever you want to eat so long as you stay within your calorie budget. Now, what we find though, Sean, is that while that is absolutely true, that as long as you stay within your, you know, primarily stay within your calorie budget, secondarily hit your macronutrient distribution, what we find is from a performance standpoint, there's a big difference in how we feel, right? If we are, if all of our calories come in the form of, of a pecan roll, uh, <laughs> and that's all that we eat for calories versus, yeah. you know, a, a balanced, high performance nutritional intake, right? That folk that, 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 that emphasizes whole foods, right? Nutritious, colorful, whole foods. So at some point, 
well, that's true that you can eat whatever it is that you want to eat. Don't you feel like as endurance athletes, what we eat does impact how we feel when we go to perform physically? Well, absolutely. But also the macronutrient mix kind of forces you to, you know, you can't hit your macronutrient mix if all you're eating is like nachos and pecan rolls. It's just impossible. So they're almost all carbs. Um, to hit your protein goal, especially, and I love going up to 40, it, you're inspiring me to, to take, to, you know, raise it to the next level. You're going to have to eat, you know, a lot of lean, you know, lean, like chicken and eggs and, you know, and, and, and beans and, and things that are healthy and, and real, real food. Um, so if you just say hit your calorie goal, well, great. I could have, you know, 2000 calories of a big Mac and fries, but if you also have to hit your macronutrient thing, you're just not going to be able to do it unless you, you know, have a well, well-rounded meal. Um, I did want to share one other completely unintended consequence of not only the, um, tracking the calories, but also the intermittent fasting is that without wanting or meaning to do it my intake of alcohol came way down. Um, I was a two glasses a night with dinner kind of guy just because, you know, it paired well with food and I enjoyed having a glass while I was cooking and then a glass while I was eating. But then once you start to realize, you know, how much sugar is in, you know, the alcohol and how many calories it has, you can't, it makes it really, really hard to hit your numbers if you're drinking a meaningful number of alcoholic calories or to hit your macronutrients. And so I'm kind of forced with the, the choice of, do I want to have my two glasses of wine or would I actually prefer to eat a chicken breast, you know, as part of the meal and I need to, to hit my protein goal. So um, I'm not, you know, saying that's the reason to do it, but it, it forces you without even meaning to, in some cases, to make decisions that are healthy for you. And I really appreciate you bringing up alcohol. In fact, right before you made that comment, I just scratched down on my, on my notes, alcohol. And I put it, I I underlined it because I wanted to ask you about that uh, here again, Sean, you beat me to the punch. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Yeah. I, my, my experience has been that, um, you know, over over the last two years, um, uh, I've, I've, I've lost over 30 pounds and have, and, and I've been able to keep that weight off. I've also been able to, to, to drop my percent body fat and keep it under 10% for the That's last amazing. almost, almost two years. Now I understand there obviously are, are people that are leaner and, and fitter than I am. But for me, um, uh, two years ago, you know, my body weight had crept up to 190 pounds. I'm only five foot 10 and uh, my percent body fat was in the, in the high teens, 16 or 17%. And again, I think for most, for most 50 year olds, you know, that's probably pretty good, but that wasn't good enough for me. Uh, And so, you know, two years ago, I started on this journey to, uh, to see where I could go at, you know, at, at 52 years old, um, how lean could I get? How disciplined could I be nutritionally? And what impact might that discipline have on my body mass and body composition? A big part of that journey, Sean, was uh, taking a, a really hard look at alcohol consumption. Um, and, and again, I, I, I probably was not terribly unique in having, you know, a couple of premium beers a night and occasionally a cocktail with, with, with movie hour. Um, I mean, that's not, 
terribly unusual. Um, and my alcohol consumption was fairly consistent. In other words, I didn't save up, you know, all of my, all of my alcoholic beverages for the weekend. I wasn't, I wasn't a binge drinker, but I was really consistent with, with two or three, you know, alcoholic drinks a night. And, and again, I, I feel like that's not terribly unusual. Um, but when I, when I took a really hard look at that, I eventually realized, and when I began to experiment on, on cutting back dramatically, in other words, effectively cutting alcohol out of my day-to-day life, I found a couple of things happened. One, it was much easier to maintain this 30-pound, 6% loss of body fat, much easier to maintain that. And as we'll talk about in just a moment, there was a very positive impact on reducing alcohol consumption and my recovery from, from the previous day's physical activity, more specifically with respect to restorative sleep. So for me now, as a 54-year-old and you know, athlete, um, I have a, essentially and effectively cut alcohol out of my day-to-day existence. Might I have a glass of wine or two if my wife and I go out to dinner, which is very rarely? Yes. I mean, I don't, to your point, there's no absolutes. Um, but I have found that, that again, to your, to your point about the, the what if and, and going from impossibility thinking to given. Two years ago, if you were to say, if you were to, to have told me you're going to cut alcohol out of your day-to-day existence, I would have told you that's probably impossible. Um, not that I necessarily had a, an issue with alcohol consumption, but it becomes habitual. Yeah. But here I am two years later and have effectively cut it out. Um, and, and my health is exponentially better than it's ever, than it's ever been. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. And to get back to your point earlier about eating, being part of rituals, you know, you didn't, you weren't drinking the premium beer because you were thirsty. You were drinking it because it was part of a ritual where I sit down and I watch my favorite TV show and I have a beer with it or whatever. So it probably felt impossible because you'd be giving up rituals, you know, that were part of your life, but you didn't actually need the, the alcohol, um, find some new rituals to replace it. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden now you don't, you know, you're treating your body in a better way. Yeah, so true. And, and, uh, I mean, your, your example of, uh, again, of, of associations between <clears throat> watching football, college football on a Saturday and, and having a couple of beers is, is, is very valid. Um, there's also the, there's also rituals associated with, with social gatherings too. And, uh, not that, not that alcohol is a central focus of, of our family social gatherings, but it was part of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and, and that was, that was, uh, that was admittedly a challenge in the very beginning to not have a beer when I went to visit my dad or, and my mom, or to, you know, to, to not have a couple of glasses of wine at, uh, you know, at a, at a Sunday family dinner, that was a challenge, but it became easier with time. And, uh, I, I, I am not an advocate of, 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 of people abstaining from alcohol. I don't, I don't, I don't push that or, or promote that, but I absolutely encourage it for my athletes that begin to talk about that possibility. Mm-hmm. What if coach, I were to begin to cut alcohol out of my day to day existence. What do you think, right? 
would be the potential positive impact in, of that. And now I can, I can speak, I can speak to that with, with some experience. Um, it's so funny how you, how you and I share so much in common there with respect to nutrition. And, 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 and I guess the last thing that I'll say about nutrition, and I'll get your final word on, on nutrition is that I don't necessarily think just because you and I both are doing the same thing as, as, as athletes over the age of 50, that that's the only way to do things from a nutritional standpoint. But I do think the listeners should, should pay attention to this fact. And that is that you and I are doing the same thing uh, and without any influence by each other. Again, you and I have never talked about this. And yet we both found our way to almost the identical approach from a nutritional standpoint. Sean, what's your final word on nutrition? The only thing that I've come to realize and I was um, is that it took me a while to realize that I had tremendous discipline about my workouts and I would get up, you know, early in the morning and get them done. But for some reason, I never held myself to be disciplined with nutrition. And it's all part of the same goal, right? Which is to have a certain, you know, to be a certain level of health and a certain level of, you know, your body composition, how you look and feel about yourself and your level of energy. It's all, it's all part of the same workout at the end of the day. And so I'm trying to realize that every time I go to eat, that's part of the workout. And if I can be disciplined about doing those extra, you know, three, you know, push-ups when the muscles are starting to, to burn, why can't I be disciplined about putting, you know, only taking a, a medium scoop of ice cream instead of like filling that bowl all the way up? Um, and uh, I have to hold myself accountable to be disciplined in both aspects because it all, at the end of the day, is part of the same goal. Uh, agree. And when I think it becomes much easier when we begin to see nutrition from a performance standpoint and that there is a connection uh, between what we eat and how we perform, which is a great segue into physical performance or more specifically physical fitness. Uh, Sean, walk us through your, your fitness routine. What does your, what does your week in fitness look like? So I've become, it's changed dramatically from when I was younger. I used to run, 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 and more running. I was very one-dimensional. And as a result, I ended up getting a lot of injuries over time. And the injuries ended up being a blessing because they forced me to, to think about doing other things to balance out my fitness and to, you know, kind of give my muscles other ways to get strong. First, I started doing triathlons. Um, so I added the swimming and the biking and was doing those three. Um, but then in my right around the time I turned 50, I discovered my new love, which is obstacle course racing. Um, I'm a big Spartan, um, tough mutter, you know, um, uh, fanatic now. Um, I do a bunch of races every year and to be good at obstacle course racing, you need to be strong. Um, you need to have good upper body strength, good shoulder strength, good grip strength, good leg strength. And so I've embraced, embraced strength training. So now my, and I'm guessing Chris, you're probably an, a strong advocate of this as well from everything you said, but I typically do strength training three to four days a week. I try to do four, um, sometimes it ends up being three. And then I sprinkle in the, the cardio, um, either by doubling up on those days or by doing them on other days. So I'll do two to three days of running, a week. I'll do, try to get out for one long bike ride. 
Um, but I always try to make sure the strength is the center of it all. Um, yeah, again, uh, <laughs> you and I, you and I share this mindset. Uh, I don't, um, uh, OCR or obstacle course race. Uh, now I have though, uh, I, 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 I did in the past for, uh, for a handful of years in my forties, um, doubled in obstacle course racing. This was pre Spartan days. Um, uh, back when, um, well back sort of toward the, the, the tail end of the color run error. Remember the color run? I don't know that. No, yeah, this is new to me. The, the, the color run error, the color runs, and and the, the, it's it certainly still is a thing. But color runs um, were these um, usually five k ish road runs um, that um, promoted folks to get a group of people together and come do these runs. And throughout the run, um, people would um, people would and I'm talking like I know what this is about, but I've never done one, mm -hmm. just my observation uh, and what I think I understand about them. People would throw colored chalk uh, and you would run through these clouds of colored chalk and you would, at the end of the run, be covered in this <laughs> colored chalk. They're called color runs. Now, what does color runs and obstacle course racing have to do with each other? Virtually nothing, although, <laughs> although the obstacle course racing uh, was beginning to become come into prominence i think in part because what what event directors were seeing was that there was this um this very popular movement um to host events in which people could do them collectively mm -hmm. and i can tell you as a, as a race director myself it's always better if you can get groups of people to show up to your event rather than trying to trying to uh, trying to convince individuals to come to your event. Right. I mean, I know if I can talk Sean Hoyt into coming, Sean's got 10 friends he's going to bring. And so really all I need to do is convince you to come to my event. You'll bring your 10 friends. That was the idea with color runs. And initially um, um, that was that was the spirit of obstacle course racing as well. Right. These these mud runs, for instance, um, we did one down in uh, in Amesbury, Mass, I think, uh, uh, called the Hoppin' Mad Mud Run for a couple of years, uh, and it was a team event, right? We would we would show up as a as a team of uh, as a team of three, and I and I did a, I did a, a, a couple of uh, of solo obstacle course events as well. But anyway, uh, I'm familiar with obstacle course racing, although although I I, I don't do it now. But very much like you, um, I have uh, you know I have I have shifted toward strength training as the focus of my fitness. Now, interestingly enough, in my in my in my in my previous career as a clinical exercise physiologist, specifically working in cardiac and pulmonary rehab for three decades, um, and this was when I was in my twenties and thirties, I would I would I would my preach. To the to my patients has had always been that strength training is going to be it needs to become uh, much more important than in, in aerobic endurance activities the older you get and again that, that's been my preach since i've been in my 20s you know professionally um and now here i am in my 50s and i am i mean i'm literally practicing what i have always preached 
And I think a, a big part of that, uh, or a big part of that reason, Sean, and, and, and I'm again, curious to get your take on this and, and, um, and, and your thoughts about this is that, um, you know, as we age, the battle is against losing skeletal muscle. Mm-hmm. It's actually the, the, the technical term is called sarcopenia, age-related loss of skeletal muscle. It happens to all of us. Um, I mean, the entire body ages. We know that, right? I mean, the, the heart ages. But interestingly enough, the, 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 the muscles of our body age much faster than our cardiac muscle. In other words, the heart will age, but, but, our, but our skeletal muscle ages much more rapidly. And really the only way to offset the age-related loss of skeletal muscle is through strength training. And so what I was preaching to my, to my, to my patients 20 and 30 years ago uh, was, the, was the benefit of strength training as it relates to loss of skeletal muscle. For me, while that's important, um, I'm also an athlete like you. And so strength training, you know, sort of has a, has dual benefit. Now it's not only important for me to offset age related loss of skeletal muscle, but, but, but I also want to perform as a 50 year old athlete. I'm, I dabble, I dabble in, in throwing the javelin competitively, wow. uh, which is, it's not the same as the obstacle course racing, but it's <laughs> yeah. a, it's a, it's a power sport. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in, in which strength is a really important, uh, element. Um, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit more specifically about the type of strength training that, that you do. Again, I, you know, anyone, anyone, uh, who, who follows you on Instagram, um, has a pretty good idea of what you do. Cause you're, you're, you're pretty open, uh, with your strength training approach, but, but, but tell the listener, Sean, um, more specifically what, what you do, uh, with strength training, what is your strength training uh, program look like? I have a go, uh, my go-to. So the kind of the, the, the foundation of every strength workout is um, a, a system called the X3 bar system. And it's, you know, there's other ways to do it, but it, at its core, it's resistance band training. Um, that the, There's a bar that comes with it and then a plate at the bottom. And then the plate and the bar help to balance out the forces of the resistance bands. So they're not digging into your feet or into your, into your you know, hands. But um, you can lift a tremendous amount of weight with, with resistance bands because the, the resistance is variable. And so you know, the amount of weight that you're holding at the strongest point is different than what you're holding at the weakest point. And the resistance band allows you to kind of hit a higher point at your strongest because you don't need to carry that weight at the weakest. And uh, I've really benefited from this system. I've been using it for a couple of years now, and I find that just the, the efficiency of how it helps build muscle, I haven't found anything else that, for me, that is as efficient. And I only need to do one set a day, um, you know, and then usually what I'll do is I'll supplement it. So I'll do and the guy who advertises the X3 bar says only do one set, but you do it completely to failure. So every every rep you go until you literally can't do another one, um, which is why I'm constantly looking at that poster that says don't stop when you're tired, stop when you're done, because you, you're supposed to go until you literally can't go anymore. Um, 
but then usually like uh, if it's a pull day, for example, on the X3 bar where I'm doing the resistance bands, then I'll also do some core. I always blend, mix in some core exercises. I like to put on ankle weights and do various core exercises. And then I'll usually supplement it with like some push-ups. Um, and uh, now I've gotten a little sadistic. I like to put on my weight vest and do my push-ups um, just for a little bit of, of added challenge. But I'll typically break it up into a pull day in which I'm doing pull exercises. And then I'm also up on my pull-up bar um, doing a lot of grip work for my Spartan training. I've even installed a bunch of rings in my utility room that I can swing from and practice, you know, that element of it. Um, so I'll, 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 ideally I do push day twice a week, pull day twice a week, starting with resistance bands and then supplementing it, um, during the workout. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you, that you incorporate core work into your routine because I think that, uh, uh, core work or lumbo pelvic hip stabilization work has come a long way <laughs> in the last 20 or 30 years, right? It used to be that uh, um, you'd, you'd go to the gym and, and you'd save abs like for the last five minutes before you left the gym. And inevitably <laughs> it was a, you know, it was a handful of sit-ups or some crunches and almost always uh, it got sloughed off at the end of the routine because you were just tired and you just wanted to be done. Uh, and so, uh, abdominal or lumbo pelvic hip or core work, uh, was, 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 was always underemphasized. I really feel like, um, uh, that beyond the age of 50 for me, um, and, and I, I suspect for, uh, for also course athletes like yourself, core stabilization is vitally Im important, right? I mean, we know that in order to transfer power, uh, that we generate from our lower body uh, to our upper body, we, we have to, we, that, that power has to transfer through the lumbopelvic hip area, through the core. Uh, and the better that we can stabilize the pelvis, um, the, the, um, the, the more power we can transfer from the lower body to the upper body. Um, uh, and conversely, um, the weaker our core is, the more, the more energy we lose through the core as we transfer that energy from our lower body into anything we're doing with our upper body. Um, I, I'm also glad to hear that you uh, incorporate some uh, sports-specific strength work into your routine. Again, I, I know this from following you on Instagram that, um, uh, that you are a, a proponent uh, of you know, when it's possible, right, to uh, uh, to have, you know, obstacle course specific elements and activities as part of your routine, other than other than the other than the, you know, the, the ropes or the or the rings. Um, do you also have I can't remember, but do you also have um, almost like a, a like a tennis ball that's attached at the end of a, of a rope. Uh, aren't there occasionally um, uh, grip? Uh, obstacle obstacles in which you have to sort of hold on to almost a, like a round object. Yep, absolutely. Uh, yeah, they're yeah, um, as part of that. Do you, do you have that as part of your your yep. home gym? There's a there's um there's a really if you're creative and you even if you have like you know some you know even if it can be gritty spaces like your utility room in your house you can if you're interested in this you can do a lot of do it yourself. You just put in a lot of anchors into like the studs or you know the ceiling beams. And then you can get a whole assortment of grip attachments. 
So there's this fabulous company called Race Ready Obstacles. Um, and I just bought a whole collection. I have the rings, I have those balls, I have ropes, and then you can just change them out because they just hook in. And, uh, and then obviously you can go to playgrounds and work on monkey bars. And every time I see a good set of monkey bars, I pull over my car and get out there and swing with the kids and, you know, look like this crazy old man. And, um, but there are a lot of ways you can do these things on your own. I have a rope swing in my backyard and I do the rope climb and, um, some of my neighbors think I'm crazy, but, um, it's surprising if you're creative, how many of these you can do in your own house. Yeah. So do you, <laughs> I, I have, I have an athlete, I have an, uh, an, an OCR athlete that I coach, uh, from Canada. Uh, and, uh, and he is, uh, uh, he'll be competing in the elite category in Spartan racing this year. Uh, so I'm, 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 I'm intimately familiar with, with OCR, uh, race programming, uh, or event programming or training because I, uh, I, I've designed a, a program, uh, for my athletes. So a couple of follow-up questions as it relates to obstacle course, uh, or Spartan specific training. Uh, I think it's called the Hercules hoist, uh, right. Which is, uh, well, you just if if I if I have uh, if I have the correct name there, please to describe what the Hercules hoist is. Yeah, so the Hercules hoist is um, you've got a sandbag, which is attached to a rope, and then it goes the rope goes way up in the air and attaches to this pulley that's probably 40, 50 feet off the ground, and then comes back down to you, and you have to grab onto the rope on your side and pull that sandbag all the way up until it hits the top of the pulley and pull it down. Um, and, uh, you know, if you haven't done it ever, you know, the technique is, you know, um, there's definitely a technique to it, but if you stop and watch the other participants, the, the technique becomes quite clear because pretty much everybody figures out the best way to do it. And you kind of have to get really low, um, and use your feet on the kind of the, the metal barricade as leverage. And, uh, you got to kind of wrap your, you know, get a good grip on the rope and, with, with the right leverage and a good grip, um, usually I, I have a hundred percent success rate on that one. Hmm. Uh, but you don't, you don't specifically train that cause you, you don't have a Hercules hoist set up as part of your home training, correct? I don't. Got it. Got it. Um, you, Where, you, you, you yeah. would rely on, you would rely on your pull days and hmm. your grip strength and your knowledge and experience with leverage specifically related yes. to that. Uh, that obstacle in order to complete it. Um, I also know that as part of Spartan racing, um, um, some or some, if not the majority of these Spartan races occur at uh, ski resorts or mountain resorts, uh, in which in which um, uh, an important element of it uh, is the uphill part of it, the racing uphill. Uh, as you race uphill, there are obstacles that you would need to negotiate as you race up to the top of this mountain or near the top of this mountain and back down. And then oftentimes there's a, there's a second loop of that. Uh, I know with the, with the, with the, with the training program that I've designed for my Spartan athlete, um, he does not live in close proximity to a ski area. So we utilize, uh, we utilize his treadmill, uh, specifically, uh, a hill climb protocol uh, on his treadmill, on his uh, on his OCR or Spartan specific training days, as a way to improve his climbing endurance or his strength uh, endurance. Sean, um, how do you train uh, that element of Spartan racing? So there's there's two things that help me. Number one is the running group that I'm part of. 
um, which is a group called Belmont Track Club, which works out in Belmont, Massachusetts. Um, one of the, the guys who's kind of one of the core members of the team, his name is Scott Dedeo. Um, he's a big trail runner. Um, he's training for a 200 mile race coming up, you know, later this year, for example. And so, you know, he needs to do a lot of hills as part of his training. So he has found all of the steep, big hills that we live anywhere close to. Um, and he'll take me on these runs. We did one last week where we ran 12 miles and we hit nine like major hills over those 12 miles, like one after the other, after the other, um, really steep ones that leave you breathless by the top. So I'm doing a lot of hill climb as part of my running now, which I think is, you know, really kind of builds up that leg strength. But I also have a 60 pound sandbag and I, 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 there's a hill in my neighborhood and I'll just throw that thing on my back and go up and down, up and down. Um, just on this hill in my neighborhood with the weight on my back, because at a Spartan, you're going to have to do it with a, a bucket full of rocks at one point in the race. And you're going to have to do it with a heavy sandbag at another point in the race. So just getting used to doing it with weight, um, is important. And so I just bought, I actually bought the Home Depot bucket and filled it up with rocks and I bought the sandbag and I alternate doing both of those. Yeah. Very smart. Um, my athlete also has a, has a sandbag that he uses as part of that. Uh, uh, sports specific training. Um, you know, I'll also say too, that I, I, I think what's important in obstacle course racing for anyone, whether you're, whether you're above the age of 50 or not, um, is, um, uh, is, is being able to tolerate, um, upper body physical demands with a heart rate that is elevated. You know, it's one thing, Sean, if we, you know, if we walk into the gym and, and we're casually standing around and, and we go to do a set of pull-ups on the pull-up bar, right, with our heart rate, not obviously at resting levels, but our, our heart rate fairly low because we've just been standing around and doing pull-ups, challenging, but pull-ups become exponentially more difficult when your heart rate is at or near threshold, right? So for you and I, um, to, to do a set of pull-ups with our heart rate at 140 or 150 feels a heck of a lot different than doing a set of pull-ups with our heart rate at 90 or a hundred. How do you simulate if you do, how do you simulate the, uh, the needing to negotiate obstacles with that accelerated heart rate secondary to, you know, running up the mountain to get to the next obstacle? The only thing I've been able to come up with is I have this uh, DIY Spartan circuit um, that I've created um, that I do every weekend as I near a Spartan race. And I've got the sandbag up the hill. I've got laps around this park with the weighted bucket. I do a spear throw. I do a rope climb. I do 20 burpees. And then I do the, the rings in my utility room. And I do them all in a row in a circuit. So I'll do five laps of those six. So it's 30 obstacles, which is exactly what you'd see in a, in a, um, a beast level race, which is my favorite distance. So at home, I'm simulating doing 30 obstacles as part of one continuous loop. Um, in like, you know, one after another without, without any meaningful rest. Um, and do you, do you collect that act, I imagine you do, but do you collect that activity data? In other words, do you, do you have a GPS enabled device or some, some other kind of activity device that collects your heart rate so that you can quantify that training stress? 
I haven't done that to date, but I didn't have really, frankly, any equipment to do that. But I got a new watch that's got, I think, good capabilities there. So that's a great call out um, to, to turn on that data and watch it as I'm doing it. I think, I mean, really, um, the if you have the ability to quantify the the training stress associated with every activity and all of your all of your all of your 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 exercises whether they're whether they're you know your 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 running activities or your cycling activities or your or your spartan specific uh strength activities i i think it's and i feel it's really important particularly for those of us uh older than the age of 50 to collect that activity data to quantify the training stress right Oftentimes, uh, as as athletes, we're, we are not necessarily the best gauge of 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 when and what type of of recovery we need. We're going to talk about recovery in just a moment. Um, you know, we. <laughs> I, I mean, you you you've used the expression that you know you're, you, you know you. The activity isn't isn't over, right? You know, un, un, until it's done, we can. And that, and that's a great mindset to have, and it's an important mindset to have. But I think, I think the flip of that is that we have to be able to collect our activity data in order to quantify training stress, so that we don't necessarily have to just rely on subjectivity to help guide us into either in, in, into either relative recovery or absolute recovery. That we can we can actually look at the quantifiable metrics and the quantifiable metrics. Uh, can show us and tell us where we are in our training cycle. You know, are we uh, are we peaking at the right time? Are we overreaching when we shouldn't be? Um, again, I, I think sometimes we can tend to be somewhat unreliable subjectively in terms of our need for strat, uh, for for rest. Right. Uh, oftentimes, as as athletes, we tend to have to take rest before we need rest <laughs> uh, in a forced way, like we get hurt. Or, yes. or overstretched or, or, or sick, and it forces us to take rest. So um, I'm a big advocate of collecting activity data. I collect my activity data with all activities with my Sunto um, uh, Sport 3. It uh, just happens to be the device that I've used for many years. It allows me to collect my activity data uh, in the gym, though, specifically collecting heart rate data, uh, which helps to quantify that training stress. Good segue into actually before we uh, before I, I segue into recovery. Uh, your last word on fitness after the age of fifty, Sean. You know the only um, thing I would say there is that you know I um, I think that you know a lot of people fe it feels impossible to get fit at this age or to accomplish a big goal because they they feel like they just don't have the time to put in with the fitness, but. I really do feel if people really sat down and analyzed how they were spending their time um, and really kind of asked themselves some hard questions about what was really their priority, um, I really do believe you'll find time. Um, and so I always challenge people to say, if they say, oh, I just don't have enough time, you know, I, I say, well, you know, just take a look at where you're spending your time and find if there's areas where you're spending a meaningful amount of time that frankly, if, you know, are they are probably less important than your fitness. And if you can reprioritize re your time, you'll find it. Um, and so I think that's a, a fallacy that a lot of people, you know, feel like they're powerless, but they're not. 
Um, they just need to really prioritize, you know, what they're doing with their life and how they're spending their time. Well, and I think it comes down to a point that you made earlier about, uh, I think you ref- referenced David Goggins again, and that's, uh, you know, look at the data <laughs> before you generalize that I don't have time, uh, do a time study, do a self time study. Uh, and see where you are spending your time. I think you're absolutely right that, uh, I mean, I think, I think that coupled with that, that, um, that vision of who you want to be um, uh, tends to result in you finding the time. I think it becomes much easier in that way. Well, as, as, as athletes in our, our fifties, uh, or I should say for me as an athlete in my fifties, um, my recovery practices are now equally as important as my physical activity habits. Um, in other words, in order for me to, to perform physically the way that I want to and need to perform today, I must be recovered from yesterday's activity. Um, and, uh, again, what, what what I was able to get away with in my 20s, I can no longer get away with in my 50s uh, with respect to inattention to recovery practices. Sean, talk a little bit about your uh, philosophy on recovery and uh, and and how it plays uh, or and or if it plays an important role uh, in your current uh, situation. I mean, really, it's the only way that I've been able to to do the things that I'm doing, you know, in my 50s, because in my 40s, I was starting to get a rash of injuries. I mean, I tore or ripped or had tendonitis in a bunch of different places, including my Achilles, um, the torn Achilles and, you know, a number of different injuries. And, you know, I very much kind of thought, well, like maybe I'm done. Maybe this is nature's way of telling me that I should just stop. And I'm so happy that I didn't accept that. And that I said, well, okay, well, you know, maybe there's a way to rehab this, or maybe there's a way to strengthen this. And of course, once you get into physical therapy or you get help, you often find out that the thing that's hurting isn't the problem. Maybe your knee is hurting you because you're weak in your, in your calf muscles, and then that's causing extra stress on, on the knee. And uh, when you dig into it, you often find there's things you can do, um, areas that you can work on that will create relief in other parts of your body. And so um, I've had some amazing insights that have come out of um, recovery. And so if anything, recovery has uh, ultimately been a blessing uh, to me because I've learned, you know, how to stay more more fit. Um, and so now, for example, I try to make sure that I'm staying strong across all the, you know, muscle groups in balance um, and that I'm focusing on flexibility and stretching. I do a lot of rolling. Um you know, especially after workouts. And um, I've got a board, on a, a little, just a little sign in my workout room that says, you know, work on your weaknesses. Um, and then I, my two weaknesses right now are my knees and my shoulders. And so every day when I'm doing a workout, I see that and I said, okay, I've got to do at least two things that are based on strengthening my knees and two things that are based on strengthening my shoulder every workout. Um, and it works over time as I've stuck with that. I feel so much stronger now in terms of my shoulder strength, which is good for the Spartan, you know, the, when you're moving in space, hanging on things. And then with all the running I've been doing, you know, having the, the you know, the being able to kind of get through it from the, the knee strength perspective, 
Um, so I've really come around to, you know, just focusing on balance and making sure that I'm kind of stre stretching and strengthening everything so that everything's in harmony. Do you do anything purposefully with regard to uh, uh, nutrition, recovery, nutrition, nutrition associated with activity? Um, I mean, I somewhat, I mean, I certainly think that, you know, eating more protein than I used to eat helps with recovery. You know, I try to focus on like yogurt and, you know, and, and fish and things that I think, you know, I've heard or been told like help to accelerate recovery. Um, you know, I also, um, you know, I drink milk, you know, a decent amount of milk, which I think, you know, I believe is, is helpful. Um, I have a kind of go-to post-workout recovery powder that I did a lot of, you know, did some research and came up with. Um, I think all of those things help, um, you know, but, uh, um, you know, to me, the, um, the stretching and the rolling and, and, and that, that work, I think, is what's of, of all of that been, been what's most helpful. But I believe it all comes together and it's all it's now kind of part of a package. I probably spend the first 10 minutes of every workout just working on stretching and mobility. Um, yeah, I, I think soft tissue work really is a force multiplier. Um, uh, and, and becomes increasingly important as we get older. Um, uh, and, and in particularly for those of us who are in, uh, strength sports or power sports, um, you know, keeping the soft tissues at their optimal length and tension helps to facilitate optimal, uh, force production, right? So, uh, so a muscle group that is overactive or too short or conversely, a muscle group that is underactive or too loose cannot generate optimal amounts of force. Now, that becomes increasingly important uh, for the small stabilizing muscles, particularly about the shoulders, uh, about the knees and the, and the hips. So uh, I, 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 too, am a, am a big advocate and proponent of, of soft, soft tissue work. Uh, what's your take on hydration? How important is hydration and, and do you focus on it? You know, the, you know, I think it, I think it's um, important, but I think it's hyped. Um, you know, I think in a, in a short, in a run under an hour, as long as I've had or a workout under an hour, as long as I've hydrated beforehand, you know, I don't think within an hour stretch that I, that I need to do a lot of hydration. Once I get past an hour, kind of the same rule of thumb, similar to what we talked about with, with nutrition and carbohydrates, then I feel like I've deplenished my nutrients and I need more hydration, especially more electrolytes. Um, but, I'm, you know, I think that, that, you know, if I'm running a 5K, I don't need to, you know, if I'm going to be done in 20 minutes, you know, although that's a good time for me, but let's say 21, 22 minutes. You know, I, I've hydrated well enough before. My body is going to be fine through that stretch of time. So I think it depends on, and of course, the heat is a big factor. If it's a really hot day and you're going to be sweating a lot, then you're going to need more. Hmm. I mean, I think I think when it comes to hydration, there's there certainly is there's there are considerations for within activity hydration, which you just I, I think uh, elucidated really well, and the need for within activity hydration. Really, I think it depends on 
on the environment. I think it depends on the activity intensity. I think it depends on the activity duration. But perhaps, perhaps even more important than within activity hydration is day-to-day -day hydration and and and, main, and, and maintaining uh, ideal or optimal hydration status outside of physical activity, right? And 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 for me, uh, urine color is always a really good indicator of hydration status. And so I think uh, for the listener, uh, ideally, uh, when 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 urine color is is pale yellow is probably suggestive of ideal or optimal hydration status. I'm not a big fan of clear uh, urine. I think that can tend to be be a symptom or a sign of overhydration. And of course, we would want to avoid uh, uh, a very brightly colored uh, uh, urine would be an indicator of uh, significant under hydration. I also think that hydration uh, helps to facilitate recovery because remember, it's, you know, it's, um, it's, body fluids, it's blood specifically that, uh, uh, that, that nutrients flow around through the body. And so I, I think it's important. Um, uh, I think it's important for that reason, also for making sure that joints are optimally uh, lubricated in order to, you know, maintain uh, ideal or, or optimal hydration levels. Um, last element as it relates to recovery, I want to talk about for a moment is uh, sleep. And uh, whether or not uh, do you uh, do you collect sleep data, uh, and or how important is restorative sleep for you from a recovery standpoint? For me, I you know I I get a little I listen to a lot of like motivational tracks when I work out, and uh, there's a lot of them that like shame sleep. Like, you know, if you're sleeping, you know, then you're not working on your goals and you're being lazy. And if you're not up at three in the morning, then you're, those are two hours you could have been working out. And, you know, I think actually sleep's really important. Um, you know, and I have a goal of getting seven to eight hours most nights of the week. Um, now, I've, I recently, I mentioned the Belmont Track Club that I joined. Um, they're, they're early risers. You know, I'm up before five, you know, we're running by typically 530. So those nights I might only get, you know, six and a half or, or so or six, but, you know, most nights, you know, probably five, you know, four or five nights out of the week, I'm getting a solid seven to eight. And I, I think that's really important for recovery. Uh, yeah. It's funny to hear. It's funny to hear anyone, uh, sheep, excuse me, sleep shame. Boy, that's, yeah. a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a difficult Don't combination of words. Sleep shame. I feel like sleep deprivation is actually a national health crisis. Um, too many American adults are sleep deprived. Now, of course, one way that we know this is that um, is that overweight and or obesity levels are so high in this country. Now, not not all overweight and obesity is associated with sleep, but there is a connection between um, uh, being sleep deprived or getting suboptimal restorative sleep and higher levels of cortisol. Of course, there is a connection between cortisol, high levels of cortisol and overweight and obesity. So uh, I actually think sleep deprivation is a really, is a, is a, is a really important issue um, for the general public, but, but getting quality restorative sleep, I think is critical for, for individuals and for athletes, uh, beyond the age of 50. Uh, I mean, you're, you're Boston based. 
And so I, I'm sure you can appreciate, you probably are familiar with the company Whoop. Yes. Whoop, the Boston-based uh, uh, company that was started just a few years ago is on this meteoric rise. I was watching the Masters uh, just this past weekend and uh, uh, probably no less than, well, at least a half dozen or more uh, uh, golfers that I noticed, professional golfers, were wearing Whoop band. And we know that there's actually a handful of others uh, that are using the Whoop band. You just can't see it because they're wearing it on their on their bicep. Um, but NASCAR drivers and, and professional golfers and tennis players and uh, the, the, the whoop band and its technology has, has, has really, uh, become more and more prominent and prevalent. I invested in a whoop band a few years ago so that I could better understand the sleep data that I was, that I, uh, that I was being presented, uh, to, uh, by my athletes who were whoop users. Um, it, it's, it's been revolutionary for me having wow. the device and having a much better understanding of restorative sleep and the impact that restorative sleep has on performance. Uh, Sean, I'm sure uh, as a 50-plus-year-old as a male, you, like me, uh, have, the, uh, have the experience uh, of, uh, of, of, of getting disrupted sleep. In other words, needing to get up once or twice uh, during the night in order to, uh, in order to use the restroom facilities. It's not uncommon, uh, not uncommon for anyone, but it's particularly not uncommon for, for men beyond the age of 50. Before I started using the whoop band, my assumption was that a disrupted night's sleep always equated to a, a low or underperforming night's sleep with respect to restorative sleep. That was my understanding, right? The more times I had to get up at, at night, the, the poorer quality of sleep that I was getting. That was until I started using the whoop band and actually collecting restorative sleep data. And now what I understand is that disrupted sleep does not necessarily equate to a poor quality night's sleep. That truly um, you can get into those, those restorative sleep cycles like slow wave sleep and REM sleep, even in situations in which you have to get up multiple times at night. Now, again, I would not have known that if not for collecting sleep data uh, using, uh, my whoop band. Now, uh, that sleep, uh, the ability to collect sleep data is now becoming more and more common with other GPS enabled devices as well. Right. So Garmin has a functionality on, on their GPS enabled devices that will collect sleep, uh, data, Koros and, and, uh, Sunto as well. Um, it, are you at all intrigued by by collecting uh, restorative sleep data? Have you done any research? Uh, have you do you have anybody else that you know that that collects sleep data? What's your what's your take on that? Well, my my initial take is I'm relieved to hear what you just told me because I've had some of those same assumptions, um, and so that's actually great news because um, yeah, like you, I am up a couple times and. Um, you know, I used to get back to sleep right away, so it, it um, it's great to um, you know to hear that I might actually be quickly getting back into a restorative sleep cycle. But um, you know, there's it, it's just a great conversation that we're having because as much as you and I invest in our fitness, there's still things that we don't know and still ways we can learn from each other. 
Um, so I'm learning a lot from this conversation and these are great things I can take with me. Well, I would, uh, I would, I would strongly encourage you to, uh, to pursue and, uh, and, and at least investigate it. And, and, and same thing for the listener. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the whoop band and, and the whoop device is just, is just one example of that. Again, most uh, many GPS enabled devices. Now, if you wear them to bed, will collect your, your sleep data as well. I just feel like particularly for, for those of us uh, beyond the age of 50, it's really important to have a much better understanding of restorative sleep because there are, you know, what, while, while we can't, we can't will ourselves to get restorative sleep. You know, it's not like being in the gym where we can will ourselves to that final rep to failure. We can't, when our head hits the pillow, we can't will ourselves to get restorative sleep, but there are important things that we can do around sleep hygiene that can increase the likelihood that we will get restorative sleep. So there, so it, it's not as though it's completely out of your control, I guess is, is, is what I'm saying. And, and again, Sean, as, as, as you're putting together this complete picture and puzzle of all of the important components and elements of recovery, uh, I just think that having a better understanding, a deeper understanding, uh, pun intended, of deep sleep and other restorative sleep cycles, I think, is really important. Um, well, um, what's your final word on recovery before we, 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 we wrap with mindset? My final word is a question. Um, I've been intrigued in watching you on Instagram and seeing you do these really interesting looking flow moves as part of your, I don't know if it's part of your stretching work or your core work, but I'd love to hear more about what you're doing and why. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I, what I, what I have shared uh, occasionally on my, uh, on my social media accounts uh, are um, core exercises. Um part of my core essentials program. Uh, I, have, I have developed a, a six exercise core uh, training program called Core Essentials, uh, in which the six core exercises are designed to be done in sequence from, uh, uh, from, uh, from uh, core exercise, and the core exercise category sequence is bottoms up exercises, exercises in which you move your legs toward your upper body. That's bottoms up. Bottoms up rotation in which you move your lower body toward your upper body, but you go in a different plane, more a more diagonal plane. There is mid-range exercises um, that, that oftentimes, but not always, involve the lower body and the upper body moving together toward each other or sometimes away from each other but not necessarily always, but mid-range exercises, oblique exercises, exercises that target the, the obliques. Top-down exercises, like a, like a crunch or a sit-up would be a great example of a top-down exercise. And then the sixth exercise is a top-down rotation exercise in which the upper body moves toward the lower body, but in, in a diagonal pattern. So what you have seen um, lately on my Instagram account um, is just is an example of, of, a, of a core exercise. I think, uh, and, and on my YouTube channel, I currently have 12 different core essentials routines comprising 72 different 
and unique core exercises. Again, the idea of core essentials is that those six core exercises are done in the, done in that flow, those six categories. Um, I typically will, will circuit through three of those core essentials routines in each of my strength workouts. So three sets of six core exercises ends up being 18 total core exercises. I have a library currently, Sean, that I think has close to 120 core exercises. Um, and so I, I'm, I've begun to start to share those uh, on my Instagram account. So what you have typically seen or likely uh, you've seen um, uh, are examples of, uh, of these unique core exercises. And I think, Boy, I think I think the lumbo pelvic hip complex, the core, uh, there's such amazing variety out there of exercises that if all you're doing are static planks and crunches, you're <laughs> you're you're missing out on an amazing opportunity to train the core uh, in ways that 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 are seemingly unimaginable. There's just that much variety and, and, and variation out there. Uh, I know you're a, you're, you, uh, you're, you're a planker. You, you <laughs> love to incorporate planks and I've seen you do them. I would encourage you to consider more dynamic variations of planks, right? There's, there's, I mean, it's endless. I, I, I probably have two dozen, three dozen plank variations that are all movement based. They're all dynamic planks. I don't love static planks because I don't really feel like they're terribly functional. Uh, I mean, you know, oftentimes we, you know, we do planks, whether they're traditional planks, low plank or traditional high plank or even side plank um, can be great opportunities to work on dynamic stabilization of the shoulder. I mean, you mentioned shoulder work is something yeah. that's really important to you. Boy, low plank, high plank, low side plank, high side plank. While you're while you're actually engaging the lumbopelvic hip complex, you're really bringing the shoulder scap scapular stabilizers into play. Like it's a huge shoulder workout. It's one of those like like sneaky shoulder workouts. John, um, that, 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 that perhaps, um, you know, you, you, you wouldn't need to do any additional shoulder stabilization work just by incorporating those, uh, those dynamic, uh, core exercises. Um, have you, have you, I, I think the last one I posted was like a bear plank. I'm really, I'm really loving bear plank. Uh, yeah, lately. Yeah. It, it, yeah, that you, was it. have you tried any of those? Um, I, I haven't tried that variation. I do some of that, some, something similar, but I'm excited to check out your YouTube channel and do some of these, some of the, uh, you know, the combos that you have there. So, um, I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's a great addition. Uh, and I, I'm, and I'm, a am I'm, I'm a big advocate of it. Um, Sean, let's finish with mindset. Um, uh, is I, I think it's the, I think it's the, uh, it, it's the last of the important, uh, fundamental, foundational uh, elements of fitness after 50. Um, when I bring up the, this concept of, of mindset, Sean, what is that, what does that mean to you? And, and what, what's your philosophy on, uh, on the importance of, of mindset? I mean, to me, mindset means that there's an intentionality about what you're doing. It all fits within some framework. It has some, context and some significance in your life. You're not just doing it 
kind of haphazardly um, without direction or without, it gets back to the why, you know, which is kind of what we talked about much earlier. But to me, you know, I've gone through large periods of my life just working out haphazardly. Maybe I was motivated by this particular race, but then after that, there wasn't really anything to guide me. Um, but, you know, over time, and especially quite recently, I've really, really come to believe in the power of the mindset. Um, and I think the mindset benefits you way beyond fitness. Um, I think it, it you know, it, it comes to then, um, you know, help to, to kind of, um, you know, benefit your every area of your life because you're approaching it all from a very intentional framework that's very meaningful to you. And it's going to be different for everyone. I've got one that I've come up with on my own, but uh, I do think that um, it is very individual, but having that strong mental, you know, context for everything makes everything so much more powerful and greatly increases the chances you actually get things done. How important is positivity uh, to your life now? I, I'm blessed in that I grew up in a family where optimism was kind of one of the key elements of the family. Um, you know, that, that's just kind of what I was always around. And I was raised by a single mother, you know, who worked two jobs and, you know, had plenty of challenges in, in her life, but always, you know, kind of instilled w- within us a kind of an attitude of like, hey, we'll get through this, everything, you know, we're, we're blessed. There's a lot of gratitude that was, you know, in the mix. And that's why in the framework that I mentioned that I've come up with, the first two elements are gratitude and positivity. You know, I really believe that if you view your life through the lens of gratitude and you focus on what you do have instead of what you don't have, that it just leads to all of a sudden you having a, a, a positive feeling that things are possible in your life, um, that the odds aren't stacked against you, that if anything, you know, they've been stacked in your favor. Um, and then from that foundation, I believe you're, you're really set up, you know, to do great things. I think you've said that, um, that, 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 that there's a flip side to, 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 uh, to, to, to the, this mentality that, that, that you're, you're more acutely aware of ever of some of the mistakes that you've, that you've made. Um, how do you reflect back upon, um, those experiences and, and, and the lessons, uh, that, 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 that potentially, uh, you know, they, they provided you. When you start to view your life as the fact that, you know, you're, you're in control of your life and you're accountable for the outcomes because you had, you know, you were, you had, you had influence over it. Things didn't happen to you. You made decisions and, you know, took actions and they dictated the course of your life. Once you get to that point, you can take pride in the things that you achieve, but you also realize that where you failed, you know, th- that's on that's on you as well, um, and I, you know, I it it does create more of a sense as you look back on your life that well that wasn't someone else's fault, that's on me, um, and I missed that opportunity or I you know didn't handle that situation well or, and that can really haunt you. Um, regret can really haunt people and cause them to kind of constantly blame themselves or constantly ruminate over what they did wrong, but. I think the better course of action is to channel that and to say, okay, that happened. I can't change it, but what can I learn from it? 
And if you can learn from a failure and learn from regret and say, okay, now that I know that I'm going to do something differently. Um, and this is true for fitness as well. Like I, I, I talk all the time on some of my videos about how in Spartan racing, I've failed a lot of obstacles along the way and it's tempting to give up and think I'm just not cut out for the sport. But then after every failure, I reflect on, okay, well, what, what was poor about my technique? Like, what can I, what can I do better the next time? Like maybe I change my grip or I use a different approach to the obstacle. And then sure enough, you start to see progress because you learn, you take the, you know, the lesson from the failure and you turn it into wisdom um, and you do better next time. So I think that that's regret can be helpful as long as you channel it into learning um, and, and then realize that if you do that, if you actually learn from it and do things differently, it turns out it was kind of a blessing um, at the end of the day. You can still feel regret about it, but at the end of the day, because you're now a better person because of it, you know, in a way it was kind of a blessing in disguise. I think it's true that th there are always far more opportunities for growth uh, in our adversity than there are opportunities for growth in our high achievement. <laughs> right? So oftentimes when we, when we achieve great things, um, you, you know, we, we are, uh, uh, we, we are inundated with the, uh, you know, with, the, with the kudos and the accolades that achieving greatly, uh, uh, accompanies. Um, but, but, you know, but, but it's always, I think also true that, uh, in those times in which we fell short, uh, that can oftentimes, we can oftentimes feel very alone. Right. Because, uh, you know, the, those same people are not necessarily there to, to, to lend a hand to pick us back up or to pat us on the back. Uh, people want to celebrate high achievement. People don't necessarily always uh, want to be involved in, uh, in, 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 in people's shortcomings or failing, failings. But I always feel like, again, there's far more opportunity for growth. I encourage my athletes when they when they experience a performance that 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 maybe isn't a true reflection of their fitness or their preparation. Uh, I mean, I actually have uh, have my athletes do something similar to, to to what you described. I have them do three things: I have them own it, I have them learn from it, and then I have them move forward. Right? Own it. Take personal take responsibility for what it was that you did. It's not somebody else's fault. You know, what, what, what is it, what is it that you can hold yourself accountable to? Cause I mean, it, if you can't hold yourself accountable to your shortcomings, then what can you hold yourself accountable to? Then learn from it again, to my earlier point, I always feel like there's more opportunity for growth in adversity than there is in, in high achievement. Uh, I actually have my athletes do a, a, a post event recap. I have them do a, a, a download, a mental download. They, 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 they write those thoughts down because I also feel like sometimes we have to write those thoughts down in order for us to close the chapter and put a period, figuratively speaking, on that experience in order to move forward and not carry forward any emotions associated with that, that regret or poor performance. 
right? Because how many times does that happen, Sean, right? Do we have a less than satisfactory satisfactory performance uh, and we perseverate on it and we carry that negative emotion forward? And honestly, that negative emotion does not necessarily do you any good. It just, it, it hinders you. It hampers you. Uh, it gets in your way. So I think it's really valuable to put a period at the end of the experience uh, by documenting the experience, the lessons embedded in the experience so that you can move forward. Uh, I mean, do you feel like that's a valuable way to ease that pain of regret? Well, you know, I, I, I tried what you said for the first time ever, just this last fall. Um, I trained really hard for a Spartan beast race out in Phoenix. And I felt like I was really doing well. I had a good season. Um, and I felt like I was, you know, going to peak at that race and I didn't have a good race. Um, I failed five obstacles along of the 30 along the way. I got a pretty good time because, you know, I just kept plugging away and didn't let it slow me down, but, um, you know, it, it felt like a failure. Um, from the race. And, and afterwards, I was like, you know what? It's like, if I don't learn something from this race, then I'm just going to just constantly like feel badly about it. So I sat down and wrote down the lessons for the next race. And then just doing that, I felt like I felt better. So um, I could personally attest having just done that fairly recently that it really did help me. Yeah, it's 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 an excellent exercise. I feel like to uh, uh, to work through. Uh, Sean, what's your final word on mindset after the age of fifty? You know, I think that this is really where age is an asset. Um, I think you know one of the benefit of being fifty is we've lived a lot of life, and you learn a lot along the way. I think we're less distracted. I think we know more what we want. Um, you know, usually you start to get to the point in life where you have more time, um, especially if you've been raising young kids and now they're getting a little bit older. And so I think that, um, this is the, this is the time of our lives to use mindset to our advantage. Um, it might be an area where we have a critical, a critical edge on our 20 and 20 year old counterparts. Um, so I believe the mindset is kind of the secret sauce, um, you know, of the, of the, you know, kind of older generation. And uh, to me, I feel like it's, it's given, it gives me an edge. So I think it's a way to embrace that as you get older, your mindset gets stronger, even though other things might get, you know, might become more challenging. And we'll, uh, in, a, in a moment, we're going to, I'll have you share with the listener uh, uh, how people get connected uh, to you on social media. But what I will say in, in preface to that is that um, you're starting to do uh, a lot of sharing around these concepts of mindset uh, and uh, positivity and opportunity and growth. Uh, Sean is a great follow uh, for, for, for folks, for anyone, um, particularly for folks uh, beyond the age of 50 that are looking for a positive role model and inspiration uh, you, uh, you, I think you do an excellent job, uh, of sharing that, that message of positivity and possibility and opportunity, uh, and growth. And I'll have you, I'll have you share those, uh, those, 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 uh, uh, those resources and, and ways that people can connect to you, but let's finish with this, uh, Sean, taking all of that into consideration, all of the, you know, the, the, 
the, the benefit of wisdom that mm -hmm. comes with age. Um, talk to me and, and, and the listener, uh, about some of the important lessons, John, that, that you've learned, uh, over the last several decades, um, as it relates to, uh, to fitness and health and wellness. I think, you know, one of the key things that I've learned is that, um, you know, it's, it's so important just to be intentional about your life. Um, you know, whether it's your fitness or whether it's your time with family or your work, you know, really going into it with the right, you know, to get back to mindset, um, that to be in the right headspace about it all, you know, approach it with gratitude and positivity and, you know, set goals for yourself and, you know, go out and then put in the hard work to achieve them. Um, there's so many periods of my life when I, I think, you know, squandered opportunities or, you know, kind of missed out on things that where I could have done a lot better had I just, you know, kind of been more intentional about it all. And so that's the big lesson that I've learned is that, you know, if you approach things through the right mindset, it's, it's almost, almost unlimited. Like I'm not going to be able to like, you know, tower over people and dunk in the NBA, you know, so there are some limits on what I can do, but not a lot. Um, I can do things like you said, we to harken back that seemed impossible, you know, that all of a sudden start to become possible and then eventually become given. I, I like that framework. And if you, you your life in, in, you know, thoughtfully, uh, it unlocks all of that potential. Uh, <laughs> it's a great mindset. It's a, uh, it's a great philosophy. Uh, and one that, uh, like many other things that we've discussed, it's also one that I share. Uh, I, I guess we're more uh, kindred spirits than I even realized before this conversation, Sean. Um, Sean, how do people follow along uh, with your journey? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the I am I'm very frequent on Instagram. I try to post frequently and try to relate what I'm doing to how other people can th think as well. So, you know, I encourage you not, not only to look at the pictures, but read the captions um, because the captions are try to how I, how I try to turn what I'm doing into kind of what you can do. Um, but then the exciting part for me is that um, I have recently expanded kind of the way that I can interact with people um, through other channels. So now I have a website, um, www.seanhoytstayactive.com, which you can, read my whole story. You can learn about the people that inspire me, the, the music that drives me, the products that I found useful. Um, there's a lot of content there that I'm continually adding to. But also then I've um, added a YouTube channel to that, which you can access on YouTube, obviously, or also directly from the website. That's got a number of videos where I go into these concepts one by one. So I talk about gratitude and I talk about positivity and belief and all of the steps along this journey that I call the journey to be your best you. Um, it's been a ton of fun making these videos and I really encourage people to check them out. And if you like the content to subscribe so that you get notified as I have more, cause I have a lot of ideas. Um, and so I, it's been a lot of fun and I'm excited to kind of add more content as I go. Uh, your Instagram handle is Sean Hoyt. Stay active. Sean Hoyt, stay active. I'll be including all of those links um, as part of my show notes as well uh, to make it easy for people to uh, to get in touch with you. Uh, Sean, thanks for my, so much for joining me. I had a this is a, a lot of fun, and I do feel like we're kindred spirits now, Chris. It's uh, 
I'm so glad that, that we had this opportunity to uh, uh, to to chat and to uh, you know again to to find out that we have more in common than even I uh, realized at first glance. So again, I, I really appreciate you uh, spending some time and, and joining the show. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. The pathway from impossible to given is never clear at the start and rarely is without obstacle. When you dare to consider accomplishing something you've never done, follow Sean's lead and start with the question, what if? By doing this, you begin to entertain the possibility that what you dare to dream is within your reach. At that point, it's reasonable and fair to ask yourself, how might I? Again, like Sean, when you start to explore all the possible routes to your goal and then take action, the possible becomes probable. From there, all that's left is to play like a champion today. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walkable podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoy the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half Walk Double. So check it out. And lastly, remember the secret to living well and longer is to eat half. Walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.